Welcome back to another Meet Kevin Report, episode number 87. Today, we are going to be covering a few different things, but specifically, I want to start by uh, uh, pointing out a little bit of confusion that's coming from some earnings reports. Some of y'all who do fundamental analysis or like doing fundamental analysis, uh, or those of you who just watch my fundamental analysis in the course member live streams, some folks are wondering, why does it seem like companies are talking about how greatly they've been able to raise prices? And one of the problems uh, where that's coming from is a lot of companies are reporting their fourth quarter, their, their calendar fourth quarter, uh, or they're reporting their first quarter compared to the first quarter of 2022. And so really what they're doing is they're comparing this year over year picture and saying, hey, look, this is the end of our year or this is the start of our new year. And we're able to say, look how much we've raised prices since then. But that's still understandable. It's still understandable that prices, of course, increase between January to really June, July of 2022. So a lot of companies today in earnings calls are bragging about how year over year they've been able to raise prices. But they're not raising prices anymore going forward. And they haven't even raised prices quarter over quarter, quarter over quarter, which is known as sequentially. They, they've actually either held prices flat or just been focusing on margin improvements. Now, I find that really interesting because some folks are seeing inflation expectations increase at the same time. And that creates some problems because, wait a minute, if year over year companies are bragging about how they've raised prices, is there a potential at the same time as we're seeing inflation expectations, at least on the one-year term based on the University of Michigan rise, and we just had Bullard yesterday come out and suggest, hey, we're going to have to go higher for longer. And I mean it this time. The banking crisis was a whole lot of nothing. So you know what that means. We're going to raise rates again. Oh, and we're going to raise them to five and a half to five and five eighths somewhere around there because we got to get inflation down. Now, it's wild because at the same time as you have this weird uh, short-term de-anchoring of inflation expectations, long-term expectations for inflation are still stable. Not only are long-term expectations for inflation stable, but when you read any of the earnings calls, there's no indication that we're still seeing price increases uh, at any kind of abnormal or concerning level. A price increase around 1%, 2%, that's normal, right? Even 3% to some extent brings inflation down. But this nonsense about some kind of runaway Paul Volcker style inflation is potentially giving the market some heart palpitations. And there are a few things pointing to that reason. And I think that's why you're seeing some of the indices quite red, uh, at, at least as we go into market open today, and we'll see how they evolve. You know, Netflix, of course, is usually a little bit of a harbinger of, uh, well, what's to come. And Netflix, uh, you know, they, they didn't have the customers we were expecting. We were looking at somewhere around 2.41 million ads of customers. And Netflix is like, yo, 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 stop judging us based on our customers. Judge us instead based on our free cash flows. You know, it's kind of like the... Uh, 
uh, the Wolf of Wall Street line. You know, I ask my customers to judge me on my losers, not my winners, because there are so few of them. <laughs> it, it, it almost kind of felt like that. It's like kind of like, I don't know, Netflix, you know, adding customers is a big deal. And apparently y'all aren't able to actually add customers with your new advertising supported price structure because guess what? When people watch a show, people don't want to watch ads. <laughs> it's simple. Uh, so anyway, uh, of course, yes, they had free cash flow. They had a nice net income boost, but you're seeing companies actually struggle to raise prices. Look, for example, at Tesla. I mean, Tesla's turning into the epitome of price cuts. Now, that's on one hand, potentially bad for margin. Tesla Model Ys are now 29% cheaper than they were a year ago. Tesla Model 3s are 15% cheaper than they were a year ago. These price cuts come just a day after uh, we hear that the Inflation Reduction Act has been extended for most models of Teslas, except in addition to that extension, they're also dropping prices by as much as 6%. Take a look at this, the base Model 3, which actually only gets the 37.5 tax credit, basically immediately got dropped by $2,000 as it did lose the 37.50 credit. The Model Y long range performance and standard, all three of these have the, 30, or the full $7,500 tax credit. That actually got extended. But on top of that extension, what happened? Tesla reduced prices anyway. So I, I'm like mind blown that there's this potential thesis that somehow inflation is still going to be resurgent. Not just because we're solely looking at a company like Tesla, but it's because we're looking at the broader market. Disinflation is here. Yes, year over year at many companies, prices may still be higher. But really now the competition is which company can actually cut prices to compete for fewer consumer dollars and maximize their profits. And that's actually where pricing power comes from in a recessionary environment. You have to ask yourself, what product is still going to attract customers as prices come down and margins stay high? And that's going to be a big question for Tesla and their earnings today. Have they maintained the pricing power that people believe that they have had? Remember, pricing power is not simply an explanation of, oh, pricing power means price goes up. That's actually highly incorrect because if you think about it that way, then what you're really saying is in a recessionary environment, as demand falls, a company should still be raising their price. But that would be ludicrous because if a company were still raising prices in a recessionary environment, their demand would probably double or triple to the downside. And what you would end up having is less operational leverage and you'd end up having lower earnings per share profits, which is terrible. That's not where you want to be. You want to be in a situation where you're able to competitively maintain margins, grow earnings per share. Ultimately, that's the goal of a company. And that's what defines pricing power is the company's ability to grow earnings per share with positive leverage uh, in their operating and gross margins. So we'll see what happens. But I'll tell you, to me, there don't seem to be indicators of inflation, 
but the market is still concerned about those indicators of inflation right now. And that's exactly why we're seeing treasury yields rise and mortgage rates rise once again. Redfin just reported for the first time year over year that home prices are down 3%. I thought by now they'd be down a little bit more on the year over year basis because peak to trough real estate was down somewhere between 10 to 15%. But real estate has actually started to recover in January and February as rates started coming down a little bit and inventory still hasn't moved up at all. This is despite withdrawal requests from REITs, uh, institutional investors suggesting they're going to sell defaults and commercial. We're not actually seeing any kind of inventory surge right now. And so even though Here's a chart of mortgage rates. Even though mortgage rates are high, they're certainly off their September, October, even though those mortgage rates continue to tick up there on the right or just ticked up a little bit on the right, bond yields are up. Uh, the 10-year treasury right now sitting at 3.63%. It's up almost 30 basis points again. Somehow, the market is trying to say, oh, well, now we're not worried about banking crisis anymore. Now we're back to being worried about inflation. And I can't help but look around and see nothing other than deflation and disinflation. I mean, maybe I'm losing it, but the one place I'm seeing prices go up is maybe gold and Bitcoin, which obviously some people call digital gold. But even after the OPEC production cuts for oil, look at this. This is the chart of a Brent crude. So we got oil production cuts that instantly skyrocketed oil uh, somewhere around 10%. And look, it's been bleeding out on the right side over here. We ran as high as 87.50 and we're already back to 83.16. This idea that China is going to export a massive amount of inflation when they reopen. And, and after all that inflation is exported, we're going to see a massive resurgence of inflation in America is also, dare I say, ludicrous because as China is rebounding, as you can see here, a piece from TS Lombard just yesterday, China's mobility is rebounding, services are leading the recovery. What's happening in China? China's PPIs, which is the producer price index, epic lows. They're negative year over year on PPIs. So are we. Like the leading indicators are negative. In fact, we did a uh, course member analysis uh, on PPI versus CPI, and it was phenomenal because one of the things we were looking at uh, in the chart over here was uh, was you could see the um, PPI is the uh, is the white line over here, and then you've got this sort of blue line of inflation of, of CPI inflation where really housing is just propping up the blue line. And so as soon as housing rolls over in terms of rents for year over year, all we have to do is go flat or slightly down from the 7.2% rent increases that we're seeing annualized, which is nutty. And even if you just go flat, this should roll over very soon in terms of CPI and actually follow PPI down. Uh, anyway, this is something we were talking about more in the course member live stream. But let's go back to T.S. Lombard here. Oh, that does though remind me today uh, is the day before 420. Today and tomorrow we're doing a flash sale uh, for the programs on Building Your Wealth. We are getting rid of the single courses and potentially the lifetime access as well. We're going to be doing uh, something different in the future. So if you wanted to get in the most inexpensive way, now is going to be the time to do that because it's probably going to be a lot more expensive and a higher barrier to entry uh, going forward. So good opportunity to check out those courses and that uh, 420 flash sale link down below. But anyway, let's keep going here on inflation. Look at this, T.S. Lombard, a notable bear, folks, a notable bear. 
What are they talking about? Disinflationary drivers prevail. Inflation outlook improving in a growing number of emerging economies. In fact, expectations for emerging economy inflation is falling. You could see that right there. This is the downtrend of higher expectation inflations being replaced by lower inflation expectations. Disinflation prevails in Brazil, India, China. We're expecting it to come in America, but we just continue to overweight how much rent affects inflation in America. China services-led recovery appears unlikely to boost in exports. What does that mean? No Chinese exported inflation. That's a big deal. Everybody's so worried about, oh my gosh, China's reopening is going to create this inflationary impulse. I, I hate to say it, but I've been pounding the table for five to six months going, it ain't going to happen. And the reality is, it ain't happening. <laughs> like, okay, the Chinese are going to spend more money on Starbucks and local traveling, but are they going to spend money and, and create inflation and, and more export, uh, you know, or, or are they going to export inflation to us? No, it's just not happening. So now uh, investors are highly bearish right now. In fact, uh, so bearish that it almost makes you wonder, like, for example, looking at Tesla, how much could Tesla really fall after earnings when people are already so bearish, it seems, on the market? Uh, in fact, take a look at this. Bank of America had a piece, uh, as reported by Bloomberg, that investor allocation to equities relative to bonds has dropped to its lowest level since the global financial crisis. Investors indicated that fears of a credit crunch had driven up bond allocations nearly 10% overweight. In other words, you've got people that are still so fearful about, oh my God, a credit crunch, banking crisis, that they're flocking to bonds. Now, those people are already starting to get hosed because bond yields are rising, which means people who bought bonds in the last, well, three, four weeks are already taking an L on their bond positions. And that 63% of participants now expect a weaker economy, the most pessimistic reading since December of 2022. And uh, yeah, here, look at this. Sentiment turns more bearish in April, most pessimistic thus far in 2023. Yikes. Look how bearish this is. Uh, these these little um, lows here, uh, I'll highlight these. These lows here show the last time we've had this sort of bearish positioning. My goodness, 2011 and 2012, that was like the best time to buy right here. So was 2004. I mean, you would have wanted to get out by about 2007, but 2004 was a great time to buy. 2010 still had another low ahead of it, at least in housing, but for stocks, it was a great time to buy. 11 and 12, everybody's worried about the double dip recession, which was total bull crap. June of 2019, things were still recovering the rest of the year after the 2018 disaster at the end of 2018. Uh, and then COVID was a fantastic time to buy. Personally, I would say a lot of these times right here were great times to buy. Uh, I mean, I'd say May, I mean, 2016 was a phenomenal time to buy as well. Uh, October of 2022, we're off those bottoms. And uh, the stock market technically bottomed in February of 2009. So you had a little bit more to go over here in 08. And August of 06 is questionable. I think it's my iPad. This is incredible. This little HDMI thing. I, I, look at this for a second, okay? The little tangent, little tangent. Look at this. Look at this. I thought it was the dongles. I thought it was the dongles. So I'm like, I'm just going to keep trying dongles until it stops. And I, it, this is insane. I think it's the iPad. This is kooky. That's wild. Uh, anyway. <laughs>
<laughs> like dongle man over here. I think I've got like 10 of these stupid Apple dongles and it's insane. This is driving me nuts. Anyway, sorry, tangent, but you know what? Like I'm causing dongle inflation right now by buying so many of these dongles. I'm gonna, I gotta return some of them. Some of them are still closed, so I'm gonna return them uh, because I, I'm starting to think it's not, it's not the dongles. Um, anyway, so, so people are so worried uh, about inflation coming back, but again, I, I'm just not seeing it. And we're trying to read earnings calls on a daily basis to try to understand where is this inflation coming from? And we really don't see it. Uh, I mean, you, again, look at look at the Tesla price cuts, but don't just look at uh, the Tesla price cuts. Look at the prices uh, for, for lithium. Look at the prices for some of the commodities. What we could even do is we could look at the BCOM index, which, which is the Bloomberg Commodities Index. Uh, and we could get an idea for, hey, how are we doing in terms of input prices? We already know when it comes to producer prices, we've seen producer prices fall because obviously we've gotten PPI reports and, and uh, reports suggesting, hey, things aren't actually that terrible. But for some reason, again, markets have this impression that right now it's time to be fearful again. I think if I had to give an explanation to this, and I don't know with certainty, but if I had to give an explanation to this, I think there's a possible fear that over the next two to four weeks, people are gonna be just solely worried about earnings. And if people are so worried about earnings, then maybe in the short term, it'll feel like there's some fear around uh, inflation. But again, not when it comes to actual companies and seeing this inflation, I, I don't see it. I don't see it, I don't see it at all. But again, let's let's jump on over to the BCOM index, okay? So how's the Bloomberg Commodity Index doing? Let's let's look at some things here. So here's the Bloomberg Commodity Index. I mean, it, 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 I think a seven-year-old could draw a trend line on exactly what's happening on the Bloomberg Commodity Index. When you go year over year on the BCOM index, you're at 107 right now compared to 131. What do we got? 107 divided by 131. That's a decline of 19, 18.4% uh, essentially. That's what you've got right now. Uh, you've got uh, lithium prices. Let's pull lithium prices as well. Let's get these over here so we can specifically look uh, at, uh, at lithium. Uh, China is complaining about a glut of lithium. Oh my Lord, look at this. This is kooky dookie. Uh, this is the one year lithium price index. Look at what's happening here. I mean, you were at 46.4 per ton over here, uh, and now you're sitting at 17.3. 17.3 divided by 40, what did I say, 44.1? Let me double check that. Uh, oh, okay, 48.3. Well, let's do that correctly then. 48.3, yeah, lithium price, are you serious? That I mean, lithium prices in that case are down somewhere around um, 80, that can't be right. Hold on a sec. 18.2 is actually, uh, where are we right now? There we go. What is that? What is this level right here? 18.4. Let's try that. Let's try 18.4 and 46.2. 18.4 divided by 46.2. Yeah. I mean, lithium prices are down like 60%. Uh, and that's not even off peak. That's just off a year ago. Off peak, lithium prices are down even more. I mean, you're talking 18.2 uh, from, what is that? By 50, let's go with 55, there we go. Yeah, you're down about 67%. It's remarkable. So everywhere I'm looking, I'm seeing disinflation, disinflation, disinflation. Is it possible it's going to resurge? Absolutely. And I'll tell you, if inflation resurges, Kevin, your boy Kevin's screwed. Your boy Kevin's gonna lose lots of money. 
Uh, because So, like, yeah, maybe, maybe I'm biased. But please, show me where the inflation is. Now, every time I say that, people write these comments. And they're like, but have when I go to the grocery store, prices are still high. And it makes me want to pull my hair out because here we are trying to talk about more advanced economic data. But we still have to step back and say, bro, it's the year over year change and the month over month change that matters. And if prices are still high, but they're not rising, then inflation is zero. <laughs> you know, I think that's where people are like, oh, inflation is rigged. Fine. Maybe the CPI is rigged to some extent. But look at company data. Please show me companies other than maybe pet stores and aerospace that are still raising prices. I'm trying to find it and I can't see it. Everyone's reducing prices. And so in a price cut environment, you have to ask what are the remaining companies that actually are going to be able to support the greatest margins in a price reduction environment. Here's an extreme example. Would you rather spend money investing in Rivian, which just lost its EV tax credit of $7,500? And would you rather invest in Rivian where they have to spend $280 to get $100 in revenue? Or would you rather invest in Tesla where when they spend $100 or when they receive $100, they actually have 20 bucks left in gross margin somewhere around there, maybe 20, 25, uh, somewhere around there, right? So those, that's an extreme example of which EV maker would have pricing power. Now then you have to ask yourself, well, who's going to have more pricing power, Tesla or a company like Enphase or NVIDIA? Maybe there's a flip-flop. Maybe those companies end up with more pricing power. But now we're, we're dictating between really the winners of their industry. So broad scheme of things here, uh, I, I, I don't see it. I've been looking at the comments here, trying to find somebody who's at, talking about uh, inflation. Somebody here says job market opening up this summer which could create a second round of a wage price spiral. There, there never was a wage price spiral. We were worried about a wage price spiral. It never happened. And what do you mean job openings, job market opening up this summer? Like, I, like more, more job, like more companies wanting to hire this summer? It seems like companies right now, we, we've got this sort of mixed signal in the job market, which in fairness, I'll, I'll give some credence to this idea that you know, we're not clearly in just a layoff environment. We're still adding jobs every month. But you don't have to look far to see what's going on with the Bureau of Labor Statistics and, and wages. And you don't even have to just trust them. Look at the ADP report. Even the ADP reports for wage inflation are falling. Uh, any indicator that we're looking at, whether it's in CPI, it's in wages, they're indicating a softening uh, in hourly earnings not any kind of uh, insane wage price spiral. So uh, we, we haven't seen it in the past year and a half. That was a concern, but we haven't seen it. So uh, I, I, don't, I don't know about that. Uh, yeah, I think it makes more sense to be worried about earnings. But then if you're worried about earnings, how could you at the same time be worried about oil going up? So that doesn't make sense either, right? In order for oil to go up, there has to be more demand. But if you're worried about earnings going down, why would oil go down? Or why would oil go up rather, right? Because if company earnings are going down, that means the economy is contracting, which means oil should be coming down as well. Now, I find it very difficult to make the argument that, oh, oil is going to skyrocket at the same time as earnings are going to go down. Why? The only way that would be true is if, if somehow we had additional, uh, you know, massive cuts to production. But at some point, OPEC doesn't want to cut production either because even at a lower price, they still want to be able to produce because otherwise they can't fill their coffers with cash. Right, so there's a limit to how much they can they can restrict uh, um, uh, production. 
So uh, it's it's gonna be really interesting. Uh, climate change is inflationary. Yeah, that's a pretty Republican argument. Uh, we've already addressed the Chinese reopening, but um, you know nobody's forcing you to go green. Yeah, is it expensive to put in solar panels and uh, batteries for your home? Of course, but guess who's doing that? Rich people or wealthy businesses. Are poor people doing that? No. Are mid-income earners doing it? I hope not. Hopefully they're not buying solar leases. Now there's this argument that, okay, but maybe forcing people to adopt, uh, you know, or go to e an EV strategy. But I mean, we're worried about that for 2032, where we're worried about people having to maybe offer new cars by EVs. And you know, that's just going to get kicked down the road anyway, when we even get close to that. I mean, that's like a nine year away concern. So yeah, of course, to some extent, new building is, in, uh, uh, is, is going to be somewhat more expensive uh, and therefore inflationary. But wait a minute, you have an existing housing stock that you could buy. So see, real estate, single family real estate isn't dictated by how much it costs to build a home. It's dictated by what the market will bear, which is comparative to what all the other homes are selling for. So this idea that that uh, uh, you know climate change is is uh, and and the inflation of climate change honestly at this point and this is this is I, I've been sitting here for 20 minutes asking people to give me where the inflation is, and the only thing that I've heard is well the wage price spiral is going to come back or oil is going to go up. Oil's not going up. The wage price spiral, there's zero evidence that it's coming back or going up. Uh, we've talked about the China reopening not being an issue. We've talked about disinflation. And now all of a sudden we're reaching 10 years in the future going, yeah, but, 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 but in, in the future things are going to be more expensive. Jesus Christ, <laughs> there's no inflation. Uh, so so I, I I don't know. I mean, wh whatever, whatever. Like, I, and, and I'm not saying there definitely isn't any somewhere. I'm sure there is. All, you could look, if you want to say there's inflation, go look at aerospace. There's inflation in aerospace. Go look at pet stores. They're still raising prices. Uh, and then, of course, you could look at the volatile goods like uh, foods, which which move uh, on a month-to-month -month basis. Uh, oil should be a little bit more expensive going uh, for for our uh, uh, April reports because for most of this month it's been a little bit more expensive. And remember, they they take the months in thirds, so two thirds of the month is already over. And yeah, energy prices have been a little higher, but uh, but I, I'm not seeing it. You know, uh, 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 ESG is forcing to go green. Where? Where in your life are you spending more money on ESG? This is this is a Fox News talking point. Look, I'm not a, a lot of people who watch Fox watch me too. But I really want you to ask yourself in your daily life, where is ESG making your life more expensive in a recessionary environment? It's not. It's not. That it's that simple. <laughs> so, anyway. That does it for Kevin's rant on inflation, because I don't see it, and it's pissing me off, because I really think the more the Federal Reserve is concerned about inflation, or this specter ghost of inflation, the more risk there is the Fed over tightens and actually causes a recession, when well, right now, the odds of a recession aren't like, it's not, it's not a foregone conclusion at this point, so we'll see. Next up, let's talk about, uh, we got to talk uh, the dollar. 
Uh, do we want to talk about the dollar? Yeah. Yeah, we could do that. All right, let's talk about the dollar. This is a good piece out by Wells Fargo on the dollar. The dollar. You know, I remember in, uh, <laughs> well, I'll talk about that in a second. Let me take a sip of coffee over here. All right. dollar does not mean PPI inflation. PPI inflation occurs when uh, producers and manufacturers can charge more money based potentially on rising input costs because of a weaker dollar making those input costs higher. But if the value of those input costs is plummeting faster than the value of the dollar is plummeting, then, then you're still net negative, right? So it's all relative. Of course, we can make the argument that the falling dollar should impute some kind of inflation, but not if those businesses have no pricing power. Then the falling dollar would actually help us in the international, uh, well, well, from international earnings, and it actually is, is a tailwind to earnings. All right. Next up. Uh, dollar. Let's see here. Mm. Boy, there has been a lot of fear about the US dollar losing its reserve currency status. And there are many reasons for this, but today we're gonna break down a Wells Fargo piece on exactly what's to come for the US dollar and what's left in terms of the strength of the US dollar. After all, we're hearing rumors that Russia, at least at some point in the past, has been in talks with Brazil and India and China about creating a BRICS currency, although that was probably a revived rumor since before the Ukraine invasion, so it's probably meaningless. We've talked about China negotiating deals between Iran and Saudi Arabia, once arch enemies. We've talked about the U.S.'s botched withdrawal from Afghanistan, leading to much fewer uh, uh, trust and reliance in the American government, given the power vacuum they've left in the Middle East, and also potentially the United States' failure to uh, actually appropriately appropriate aid in the Middle East and Africa. For example, why did Egypt just consider sending rockets and missiles made potentially with U.S. dollars, given that we've given them over $2.5 billion over the last four years, to Russia. Why was that even a consideration? Now we've got uh, a, a civil war essentially in the uh, northeast uh, country in Africa of Sudan, uh, the Darfur regions fighting again, and once again, countries are calling the United States, but what's the United States doing? Pretty much nothing. Now, this isn't to say that the United States should be the world police, but it is to say that the less countries can rely on the United States, the more they start doing things like trading natural gas in Chinese yuan instead of dollars. And that's exactly what Saudi Arabia just did. They started settling some natural gas contracts in yuan, renminbi, uh, in China instead of the U.S. dollar. And it's leading a lot of folks to wonder, at the same time as the U.S. dollar is falling, oh, crap. What if the dollar loses its status as the world's reserve currency? 
Well, what's first worth understanding is why the dollar is falling. The dollar, first of all, it has fallen, when we look at a six month chart, pretty pretty nicely here, okay? We're down from about 112 on the Dixie down to about 101. Go out about a year, and uh, you could see this peak of the dollar somewhere around October, where we were somewhere around 112. And so we've been on this disinflation path, if you will, uh, for the dollar. Now, why potentially is the dollar falling at the same time as all of these international concerns are propping up? Well, I'll explain exactly why the dollar is falling, but first I want to look at is the dollar going to go away as other countries start talking about getting rid of the dollar? And the reality is well outlined by Wells Fargo. And if we understand Wells Fargo and then we explain why the dollar is falling, all of a sudden there's a real chance your fears around the US dollar imploding and going away will also implode and go away. That is your fears will go away. So let's talk about what the Wells Fargo has to say about the US dollar status as its reserve, as a reserve currency of the world. I do also have to mention that tomorrow is 420 and we are going to get rid of the lowest options to join the programs on building your wealth. We're probably going to get rid of the lifetime access and the single courses after 420. So we've got a flash sale going on right now. If you like my perspectives, consider using that 420 coupon code link down below today, tomorrow, flash sale on that. And then the net prices to get in will be going up. You get course member live streams on building your wealth and perspectives from going to zero to millionaire in real estate, stocks, or otherwise. So what do we have over here? Wells Fargo, in recent weeks, the US dollar status as the world's global reserve currency has come under intense scrutiny, with some analysts predicting the demise of the greenback's reign. Such speculation has occurred in the context of China and Brazil announcing clearing arrangements and other information that we've just, uh, sorry, I almost had a sneeze there because all this fear is bullshit. <laughs> there we go. Okay, so how does Wells Fargo counter some of this? Let's look at these charts. First of all, Wells Fargo suggests here's foreign exchange turnover by currency. And you can see that the US uh, dollars make up 88.4% of all of the US or all of the international turnovers that occurred. Now keep in mind, this is out of 200% because there are two sides to each uh, uh, equation, right? So you have to think about it as uh, it, it, when you add all of this up, you're gonna get 200% because you have two sides. But the point is, you've got almost 50% essentially when you look at it that way, of all foreign exchange turnover conducted in US dollars. Part of the reason for that is US dollars don't have convertibility issues, you don't have government risk, and even though it's fiat, it's the most trusted fiat that exists. I know a lot of people, especially those in the crypto community, don't like fiat, and they'd love to see the dollar die, and a lot of people are suggesting, well, Bitcoin's going up because of the weakness of the US dollar. But the weakness of the US dollar, we could have seen coming from a mile away. There's a reason I had started to short the dollar, and again, I'll explain that reason in just a moment. But what do we see when we look at these charts? FX turnover by currency, the US dollar reigns substantially supreme. The second closest currency by for global payments is the Euro, not the uh, British pound, the Japanese yen, the Chinese yuan. These don't even hold a candle to foreign transactions. That's just one of the facts. Beyond that, what do we have here? 
reserve managers continue to choose the dollar. The U.S. dollar still represents the majority of global reserve assets. That is, when people or countries want to maintain a currency or bonds, they prefer the dollar. Now, why would they prefer the dollar? Well, one of the reasons they prefer the dollar, in fact, we've got a breakdown right here. One of the reasons they prefer the dollar over the Japanese yen is because Japan is distorting their bond market thanks to yield curve controls, and they're freaking out markets. So that's an unstable bond. Europe is concerned about fragmentation between the value of bonds between uh, basically France, Germany, Italy, Spain, which is basically saying you've got the really strong economies in Europe potentially fragmenting the yields on their bonds versus the poor countries in Europe, like Italy and Spain versus France and Germany. Then in China, you've got too many capital controls creating disincentives for reserve managers to actually allocate to Chinese bonds. Now, even though the Chinese yuan is pegged to the US dollar, it's still not desirable because now if you use the Chinese yuan, you're having to deal with the Chinese government instead of the US government. And look, I'm not here to shield the US government. Just saying, it's the least bad out of all of the other options. Uh, and so there's no surprise when we look at the US dollar, it is super supreme in the international community. But beyond that, you have to understand, people keep talking about the petrodollar going away. The petrodollar is basically oil traded in, uh, in dollars. The petrodollar market sits at around $4 trillion. That's pretty big, right? But there's some, the, the foreign use of American dollars sits closer to $12 trillion in total. So outside just oil dollars. So really, even just the petrodollar alone, if 100% of it went away, it just represents a third of international use of dollars or, or holdings of US dollars. And what's wild about this though is it's probably, in my opinion, going to take 30 years for the US dollar to no longer be used in oil settlements. And guess what we probably won't be trading in 30 years? Oil, or at least not as much as, as we do today, is hopefully our world wakes up to the beauty of nuclear clean en energy uh, over you know some of the solar and wind. Although solar and wind is probably strong enough to help, I'd much prefer, it heavily relies on battery technology, I'd heavily prefer uh, investing more in nuclear power, but uh, that's gonna take a while. It's been a little unpopular thanks to Fukushima, but that's really a topic for a different video. So if the dollar is so strong, then why is the dollar falling, Kevin? I mean, we just explained why the dollar is so fantastic and so wonderful then why is the dollar falling in value? It's very simple. There's one very simple explanation for why the dollar is falling. It's super easy. And it all has to do with inflation expectations. As inflation expectations go down and the United States doesn't suffer from runaway inflation, what ends up happening? Well, you end up seeing yields on treasuries fall. When you see yields on treasuries fall, as they have been over the last uh, six months, what you end up getting is less demand for U.S. dollars. Because think about it. The 10-year treasury in October, November was trading for somewhere as high as 4.25%. Look at this six-month chart right here on CNBC. This is a six-month chart of 10-year treasuries. The downtrend is super clear. And the downtrend actually corresponds directly to the downtrend in the U.S. dollar. So you look at the peak of the U.S. dollar right there in October, right over here, right? Peak of the U.S. dollar, 
Holy moly. You got a peek over here. Let's just go to year, one year on both of them. Go to one year on both of them. And what do you see? Peak treasury yields right here, basically aligning with peak dollar. Everybody wants the dollar when the 10-year treasury is offering you 4.2%. But as inflation concerns have started to become transitory, transitory is obviously a very offensive word. Uh, you know, the Federal Reserve made plenty of mistakes still printing money while inflation was too high. There's no defending the Federal Reserve on that. But inflation will very likely end up proving to be transitory over a span of two, three years, which is a lot longer than the Federal Reserve expected. But the point is, as inflation continues to prove that we're actually trending towards disinflation, maybe even deflation, well then, treasury yields fall. Now, treasury yields did go into a little bit more of a hole here because of the banking crisis, but the trend is clearly down from 4.2 to 4.6%, uh, just like the trend is down on the US dollar. So now, what's really easy to do though, and this is where you have to understand politics. Ready for this? This is, this is my favorite thing to mention. Let's get serious about this one. My favorite thing to mention is that you have a democratically controlled White House. And what do Republicans hate? A democratically controlled White House. Republicans also dislike the United States' performance in many different regards to the presidency, specifically in regards to the Middle East. And so what is a beautiful thing that you can do if you're a Republican or you're Fox News? You could basically say, oh my God, the dollar is plummeting. The dollar's lost 15% of its value from peak. At the same time, China's starting to negotiate natural gas currency transactions or uh, natural gas transactions in renminbi instead of US dollars. That's it. We're losing our clout. It's all because of Joe Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan and our weakness in the Middle East. And yeah, don't get me wrong. I personally think the Middle East is a shit show. And we've made some really big mistakes in the Middle East and some big mistakes with our foreign policy. I'm not arguing that at all. I'm simply saying it's awfully convenient that as inflation is going down, the dollar is falling. And it's easy to ignore the inflation side of the equation and just say, dollar falling, Biden sucks. Hell yeah, let's pop a beer, but not a Bud Light. <laughs> so anyway, look, this whole dollar de-dollarization stuff is a bunch of hogwash. If I could short the idea that the dollar is going to lose its global reserve currency, I'd probably put a million bucks on it because it's complete nonsense. It's not happening anytime soon. Even if the petrodollar went away, it doesn't matter. And the rest of it is just politics. That's what it is. And that's what you should be considering it as. So when it comes to dollar de dollarization, don't worry about it. Check out the courses instead. All right, we have a few more things to cover. So today we're gonna do the course member live a little bit later. It's gonna be at 7 a.m. So let's get ready for the bell. <coughs> oh man, sneezy today. 
My gut is whether it's a modest recession or we dodge that bullet sort of doesn't matter that much. What really would matter is if inflation's not tamed, Fed has to go much higher than people are expecting. You go into a much deeper yeah. recession. That's certainly not the likely outcome at this point. Yes, that's right. And Morgan Stanley on the call talking about the trajectory from here of the rate hikes. I guess no surprise, two years almost back to 4-3. Yeah, look, I, everybody's pretty convinced there's going to be, it's just a question of whether it's going to be one or two. Uh, I do point out that the Bank of America people question why there need to be any, given the fact that there might have been some weakness in April. I'm not hearing anybody saying that so far April's strong. Uh, I just feel like a lot of people are saying, let's see what the big, say, like the big consulting companies are saying. Uh, let's see what the big tech companies are saying in terms of layoffs. I don't hear, and Dave, maybe you can contradict me, I don't hear a lot of tech companies doing a lot of hiring. No, I'm not going to contradict you on that. Let's get the opening bell on the CNBC real-time exchange at the big board. It is Advisor Shares celebrating its focus equity ETF at the NASDAQ. It's Eat the Change, a nutrient-dense snack and beverage company. Jim, um, speaking of sort of uh, macro conditions, these reports of uh, layoffs at Disney next week. Yes. Uh, Vox saying maybe Meta's got a new round coming in the days to come. Open Door. Cutting another 22 after cutting 18. Dude, open door is trash. I'm still surprised Open Door is not bankrupt. It's complete trash. Uh, let's see. Oh, buck six. Wow. Anyway. Uh, all right. So, some things to talk about. Let's see here quickly. Uh, let me get uh, NASDAQ. Ooh, down 0.69. <laughs> that reminds me of the 69% off you can get at the current price. Before the price changes, entry price will be substantially higher for the programs of Building Your Wealth. We're going to be changing things up a little bit, actually quite a lot, uh, over the next uh, couple days. So uh, buckle up for some huge changes coming. Uh, but you'll, uh, you'll, you'll be happy you got in before uh, the changes. So uh, consider joining before the changes. Let's now go ahead and uh, jump into um, the next topic that we need to address. All right. So, do, 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 do. we did that, we did that, we did that. Okay. Yeah. Next next topic. So, I, I want to take uh, a moment to talk about uh, the Elon Musk AI, and then we got to talk about Gary Gensler, and then we got to get to the course member live stream. All right. So, yes, let's pull this up really quickly. Uh, and uh, then we'll also see what happens with the market in the morning here. And here we go. Okay. Uh, let's, you know what, we're going to start with Gary Gensler because a lot of people have been asking me to comment on what's going on here. And I think I have some insights that will be somewhat useful on the Gary Gensler issue. Uh, okay. So we'll start with this. And uh, then we will explain. All right, here we go. Well, Gary Gensler, the chairperson of the SEC, actually showed up in person to something and testified before Congress about, well, whether or not Bitcoin or Ethereum is a security or a commodity. And let's just say his answers were quite dodging. In fact, that's pretty much all he did. He basically refused to address whether or not Bitcoin or Ethereum was a commodity or security. Now, I have an explanation for exactly why Gary Gensler is doing this. 
and this is by no means going to be a shill on what's going on at the SEC or Commodities Future Trading Commission. It's actually what I think something somewhat sinister that's going on, and I'm going to give you an explanation. But first, it's worth noting what the interaction was like. Here is just a short clip, but this went on substantially further. There was even one individual in Congress who went as far as asking if Gary Gensler, when he was the chief financial officer for Hillary Clinton's campaign, if he authorized the payment for the Steele dossier. That really took Gary Gensler off guard, and he's like, oh, that's not what I'm here to talk about, and he's freaking out. It was, it was must-see TV. But we've got to actually address why we think Gary Gensler did not answer the following question. So let's watch this for a, a moment here. It gets a little redundant and repetitive, so I'll stop it when it does, and then we'll get into uh, why uh, this could be happening. Ready for this? Here we go. Or security. And again, it depends on the facts and the law. And if there's a group of individuals. I'm asking you about the, the facts and the law sitting in your seat and the judgment you are making. And so, uh, Mr. Chair, I think you, you would not want me to prejudge because I'm also. But you have prejudged on this. You've taken, you've taken 50 enforcement actions. We're finding out as we go, as you file suit, as people get Wells notices on what is the security in your view in your agency's view. I'm asking you a very simple question about the second largest digital asset. What is your view? And my view is, is if there's a group of individuals in the middle, middle that the public is in All right, so let me just ask a second question then. Do you think it serves the market for an object to be, to be viewed by the commodities regulator as a commodity and the securities regulator to be viewed as a security? Do you think that provides uh, safety and soundness for, for, for the product? Do you think it provides consumer protection? Do you, see, do you think it serves the value of innovation? I think no should be a very simple answer for you here. I think that uncertainty is bad, is it not? And I think that Congress has said that there's one agency, the Securities and Exchange Commission, under this committee. And you won't answer my question, and you're the head of that agency. So give me a break. Come on. I'm answering it in the generic because you would not want me to speak about any one set of facts and circumstance. Okay, so, but you've already spoken. Have you said anything about Bitcoin? Uh, the, the, my predecessors and the agency itself has spoken to them. Okay, but you're not willing to do the same about either. I okay, so let me just step back. There's a lack of clarity here in the marketplace. Can you at least agree to that? I think that the clarity is there. The law is clear. All that right. There's a group so let, of let me, let me. Okay. Let's stop right there because there's absolutely no freaking clarity at all on whether or not BTC or Ethereum should be considered security, a commodity, or what. But let me give you my explanation for why I think Gary Gensler is being so dodgy. So first of all, whether or not a, uh, an asset is considered a, a security or a, a commodity all has to do with the definition of a security. And this is what basically Gary Gensler keeps trying to talk about, this expectation from the public. Ready for that? Here is the definition of a security. This is the legal framework by which Gary Gensler is bound because of Congress, all right? The term security means a note, stock, treasury, stock, security feature, security base, blah, 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 security, interest, and participation, a profit sharing agreement, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so it goes on to all this crap right here. The specific part that it seems that Gary Gensler is referring to here is the following. Certificate of interest or participation in any profit sharing agreement. So in other words, 
what he keeps trying to say before he gets cut off is that, look, the law right now says if there is a group effort and therefore then an expectation of profit out of that group effort, then it's a security, which is complicated because then you wonder, okay, well, is collectively mining to create a yield, a participation in a group project and therefore making Ethereum a security? So, and since Bitcoin doesn't potentially have that pooling of, of stakers, then maybe Bitcoin isn't a security. Maybe Bitcoin's a commodity and Ethereum is a security. That's what he's trying to say, but he's completely failing because he doesn't want, and this is where the sinister part comes in. He doesn't actually want to say it's a security or it's a commodity. Why? because both the Commodity Futures Trading Commission and the Security and Exchange Commission have dual enforcement actions going against dozens of different organizations. And if one of them says something to contradict the other one's case, well, now you have the agencies that are going to be pissed at each other. Because, for example, if the CFTC guy over at the commodities place is like, yo, come on, Gary, you can't call that a security. It's a commodity. It kills their jurisdiction. If the commodities guy goes, these are all commodities, then Gary's going to be like, dude, man, now I don't have a lawsuit. And so what's actually happening here is backwards regulation. And this is where I'll show you where the buck actually stops and where the true failure lies. Okay, ready for this? So this is what's happening. So what you have is you have uncertainty in the marketplace, right? Is BTC or Ethereum a commodity or a security? What is it? There's uncertainty. I'll tell you why there's that uncertainty in just a moment, although it should be clear, but I will explain that more clearly in just a moment. So the question, there is uncertainty. Is it a commodity or is it a security? So what do you get the SEC and the CFTC doing? Well, you have these organizations saying, okay, well, we don't know exactly. So what we're going to do is we're going to sue, sue, and sue. And over here, we're going to sue, sue, and sue. And eventually what'll happen is these lawsuits will probably end up getting multiple different decisions. So you'll probably have something like this happening. You'll have decision, decision, you know, maybe this will settle, and then you'll have a decision, and then you'll have a decision, and then maybe that'll settle, right? But these four decisions, if they're not conducted by the same judge, which it's unlikely that they're going to be conducted by the same judge, are going to have different decisions. And so what will end up happening is these decisions will have to go in front of, likely, the Supreme Court so they can make an ultimate ruling. And then the answer as to whether or not BTC or Ethereum is a commodity or a security will be answered by the courts. That is what they are trying to do. So Gary Gensler is sitting here. He's not looking very good, but he's sitting over here going, um, we really need the courts to decide this. And I don't want to bury our potential cases by getting cornered into saying something in Congress that's going to ruin the case. Because if he said it's a commodity, guess what? He kills all of his cases. If he said it's a security, he kills the CFTC's cases potentially, right? So he can't do that. So he dodges. Now that makes him look scummy. But is that fair? Who is ultimately to blame? 
because this is the interesting thing about media. You ready for this? Here's the really interesting thing about media. In this exchange, Chairman McHenry seems like Jesus and the Congress people seem like Jesus coming in going, why the hell can't you answer the question? And Gary Gensler is looking at this going, I can't answer the question because guess what? Guess what? And he ain't going to say it because it's offensive. But the reality is Congress hasn't told us what it is. It's actually up to Congress, which is dictated by the people to decide what the law is. Because here's how United States government regulation works. You have a law, then you have an enforcer, and then you have an arbiter. But because you do not have law that is clear right now, you actually have the enforcer trying to force the arbiter to make something known as case law so that way you could do Congress's job for it and make the damn law. So the real issue here, ironically, is that that guy is part to blame right here. Chairman McHenry and all of the people in Congress are part to blame for the reason why this guy, Gary Gensler, which I get it, everybody hates Gary Gensler. Where is he? Where is he? Trying to find him here. It doesn't really matter. I'm just trying to put up a picture of him. Everybody hates this guy, and maybe he's not the best SEC chairperson. There are plenty of reasons to hate Gary Gensler. Whatever. Okay, I don't. That doesn't matter. Why people hate or like this guy doesn't matter. What matters is this: that Gary Gensler can't do Jack SH nine T right now because of this on screen right here. This is, by the way, the kind of perspective that you want to learn on your way to building wealth, which is why you want to take advantage of the flash sale before prices massively change. We're getting rid of the lowest price options. The prices will probably be at least a thousand bucks, bare minimum to get in for the programs. Uh, so if you want to get in substantially lower right now, as little as 39 bucks a month, or you want to get in uh, for, for somewhere around 400 bucks, check out those programs linked down below. It's substantially more inexpensive than it will be after the next couple days. So check out those programs, Zero to Millionaire Investing, Elite Hustlers for building your wealth as an entrepreneur and employee, uh, stocks and psychology of money, you name it, check them out, link down below. But anyway, everybody's hating on Gary Gensler. And again, I get it. I'm not here to defend Gary Gensler. Trust me, I'm not defending Gary Gensler. I'm also not defending Congress because the reality here is Congress is to blame. The reason all of these enforcement actions are occurring is because people want a judge, likely the Supreme Court, to answer this question. Now, guess how you could solve all of this, okay? You ready for how you could solve all of this? I'll show you how you could solve literally all of this. You ready for this? Here's how you could solve it. Right here. Congress decides, and they say something like Bitcoin equals calm, right? Ethereum equals, I don't know, commodity. Some people are like, oh, just call it a digital asset. That doesn't work. People say that on the internet. They're like, oh, just call it a digital asset. An asset is something. An asset is either a commodity, it's a security, it's a real estate. Real estate is separate. Maybe you create a new class, but then guess what? Real estate is regulated by the Department of Housing. So what you do, what you have to realize is no matter what you call it, it needs a regulator. Securities get regulated by the SEC. Commodities get regulated by the CFTC. Real estate 
gets regulated by the Department of Housing and Urban Development. So no matter what you call it, you could call it, uh, uh, you know, call it DeFi world, okay? Then guess what you're gonna get? You're gonna get the DeFi Exchange Commission that's gonna come in and regulate it. They will make a regulator for it. But the point is, you have to start with a law because until then, the regulators can't do Jack SH19. So number one, you start with a law. Then you create an enforcer. Number two, this is how law should be made. You create an enforcer. And then when there are disputes, you could go in front of an arbiter, which is a judge, a court. It's very simple. But guess who is too stupid? Congress. But then you can't really blame Congress because Congress can't get anything done. Why can't Congress get anything done? Well, Congress, get this, okay, this seriously goes back to 1776. This goes back to like the founding of the country, okay? Why can't Congress get anything done? Because our two-party system in America rewards, guess what? Gridlock. The two-party system in America basically forces gridlock. That's America for you, gridlock. So it's very difficult for Congress to do anything, which that was actually the point. The founding fathers did not want the government to be able to have too much overreach by constantly doing whatever the hell they want. Because if you had no two-party system, and instead you had a uh, plurality system, a multi-party system, like you end up having in Germany, what ends up having, what ends up happening is you end up getting coalition governments. So you end up getting coalition governments between, let's say, the liberals and the Green Party, and they stomp out conservatives. Uh, and, and then all of a sudden you get co uh, countries that are much more heavily uh, uh, leaning towards the left than people would potentially like, right? You have a lot less freedoms in Germany than you do in America. It's just the way it is. So what's the solution here? Well, the real solution is either Congress passes a law or a judge decides, right? And that has to probably be the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court's got a lot of crap to deal with though, and I'm not making excuses for the Supreme Court, okay? They got their own problems. Let's just look at, you know, Clarence Thomas. <laughs> he got some real disasters going over there and a huge PR nightmare for the Supreme Court right now. And now they gotta worry about abortion pills getting banned and, and uh, challenges to courts all over the country about uh, Roe v. Wade. It's, there's a lot. I'm not saying they can't rule on this, but they probably don't know either. So the reality is nobody wants to rule on this because really nobody knows. Nobody knows. Hey, by the way, um, Jack has a question for you. What do you call someone without a nose and without a body? And the answer is nobody knows. Nah. So in case you're wondering who's to blame, is it Congress? Is it the SEC? Is it the system? It's the system. The Founding Fathers designed our system to make it really difficult to adopt new laws. Therefore, Congress ain't doing jack crap. The courts aren't doing anything and the regulators aren't doing anything because nobody knows what the hell to do with commodities. And you know what? They don't really care to learn because they don't really care about crypto. And so that's the sinister bottom line. Security, commodity, they don't just don't like crypto. So it ain't happening.
Wow. All right. That was a lot of insight on commodities. It's exhausting. All right. Last thing we've got to talk about. Ah, 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 ah. Ah, 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 ah. Third negative day in four days. Wow, really? Are we still negative? Yeah, NASDAQ's down about half a percent. S&P falls. Man, that's boring. Everybody's nervous about inflation and earnings. Fine. All right. Yeah, oh, wow. Everything's red right now. We'll see if we get a recovery. I'm surprised. So red. Okay, so next stop. Let's talk, uh, let's see here. Here we go. I'm gonna jump into this. Okay. And it's gonna take me one second to Okay, where is it? Stand by. How are we gonna find it? Oh, that's inconvenient. All right, we'll get to the bottom of it. Hmm. Dang it. That is so weird. I had uh, I replied to something that Community Notes posted, and it was part of what I wanted to talk about, but it's not actually showing up in my replies on Twitter, which is quite odd. Usually it does. That's yeah, a little bit problematic. Okay, well, I might have to catch up on that then. Uh, we can answer some questions. Oh, maybe, maybe that's it. Oh, yeah, here we go. I think I found it. Yeah, 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 here we go. Okay, good. Uh... Okay, I found it. Yay. So we can chat about that. How low do you keep your AC in the office? It's usually 65. Just because it gets so hot in here, um, it's uh, it's really difficult to uh, have all the lights on and film without sweating. I used to not have AC in here. I have like three air conditions in here, and uh, a lot of that is due to uh, how hot it is when uh, when you're filming. <laughs> Elon deleted it. No, no, no. I got it. <laughs> all right, here we go. All right. Now we got to touch on Elon Musk's desire to star 
a truth GPT. Now, uh, Elon just launched a, a LLC or a company and is potentially looking to raise money from shareholders called X.AI. And uh, shareholders would probably be private venture-backed shareholders who are already shareholders in companies like Tesla and Twitter. So not something we'd publicly be able to invest in. But a lot of this is inspired by Elon Musk's frustration with OpenAI turning into really a for profit rather than being a non-profit, especially since he helped start OpenAI. And there's a lot of drama around, hey, wait a minute, what is a truthful AI and why does it matter? Well, we'll listen to a clip here from Elon Musk in just a moment, but I wanna start by pointing out this, uh, this uh, community notes response that Elon Musk um, had uh, following one of his uh, tweets. And so Elon Musk tweeted the following. He said, NPR literally said, federal funding is essential to public radio on their own website, now taken down. What hypocrites. Now, I believe you could actually still find this NPR federal funding item on their website. They're pretty transparent about their funding sources, uh, but it is a little confusing to break apart because some parts they like to say, oh, well, in some years we average 1% from federal organizations, and then the reality is they're kind of like misdefining exactly where some of the money comes from. And really a lot of this is blowing up right now because companies like NPR are basically getting notes put under uh, their their, uh, their actual Twitter tags showing that, uh, hey, they are backed by the government. For example, here you have NPR has a tag, government-funded media. Or another one that's pretty funny that came up yesterday was the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. If you go to just at CBC, they, uh, they argue they were less than 70% funded by the government. So Elon Musk helped label them as... 69% government-funded media, which on one hand is pretty dang funny, on the other hand makes you wonder, wait a second, whose truth really goes into this information? And that does create some potential problems because, for example, here is a community notes response to this that says, at the time of this tweet, there we go, at the time of this tweet, NPR's website dedicated to their finances still claim that federal funding is essential. So Elon Musk actually got community noted on this. So it's not taken down. E NPR is still claiming that federal funding is essential to the public radio service to the American public. Now, what I replied to with this, because it's been such a big deal, is I replied, uh, when I could find my reply, I think I have to press back twice here. I replied, it said, unbelievable that community notes left out the percent of funding. And I said I lost some respect for community notes. Now, if you weren't part of the big debate around this, that might seem extreme. Hey, community notes is just comparing or just suggesting that, hey, look, it's still essential, right? We're just fixing that item from Elon Musk's tweet, and that's fair. But all of this is based on a massive debate on Twitter about what percentage of NPR's funding is from the government. Is it 1%, is it 10%, is it 15%? And in my opinion, if Community Notes is going to come in and talk about this federal funding, you have to also talk about the percentage. Because even though NPR suggests that their funding, their government funding is essential, you have to remember what the word essential means, and it's something that nobody on Twitter is talking about. And the reason this is important is because of congressional appropriations. See, that is the most important thing that is missed 
on Twitter. And that's pretty common because we're generally trying to look for the most emotional responses to hate or support people. And it's really sad how frustrated people are on Twitter. I really feel like everybody, if, if people on Twitter were walking around, they'd all be walking around like this. Their hands on their hips and with just like a big scowl. Like, hmm, yeah, I support that, but you're an asshole. It, that's really what Twitter feels like. And to me, it's a cesspool. It's disgusting because nobody's really trying to delve into truth. Instead, you're getting this war. And so I think it's ironic that Elon Musk is trying to create truth, a truth GT, GPT, when actually what you're seeing on Twitter is very much a fostering of divisiveness. Now, there's this idea that, well, maybe people should be able to speak freely, but really what you're doing is you're creating echo chambers. And even Community Notes isn't helping with that echo chamber problem. If anything, it often feels like it leans more towards just supporting Elon overall in his arguments. Because again, whether or not Elon was community noted for saying, oh, they took it down from their website, that's not the part that matters. The part that actually matters, the next level part that matters is, well, is government funding for NPR essential? But why does that word essential really matter? Well, calling something essential is more important than actually deciding whether or not that quote unquote essential funding actually dictates how NPR's news coverage is created or dispersed or if there is independent journalism. Calling something essential is critical because when you look at congressional appropriations, Congress wants to appropriate money to where things are needed in the impression of the other companies, right? And so this, in my opinion, is where NPR is like, well, we don't really want to lose that federal funding even though they could probably make up some of their federal funding from other sources or potentially all of it, I think it's a lot easier for them to say, hey, Congress, we're essential. Don't take our money away. Now, that's my opinion. It could be wrong, right? It's entirely possible that, yes, the money is actually essential. But I know when NPR does their membership drives and they talk about their basically expiring coupon code like I do because we're having a big price increase tomorrow on 420 at the end of the day at 1159. We're getting rid of some of the lower bundle options. We're getting rid of some of the lower priced uh, courses. We're raising the prices. We're changing things com completely. So if you want to lock in the lowest price, jump in. But just like people say, hey, you know, I don't want to hear about the coupon code all the time. You don't want to hear about the fall membership drive at NPR all, uh, NPR all the time. But that's what they do to raise money so they could stay in business and actually provide value to their constituents, right? And so in my opinion, this definition of essential goes to congressional appropriations. And it's basically a way of saying, look, it's easier for just us to just take some of that money from Congress and them not cut us out. Now, then that does make you wonder, is NPR impartial because of that? Maybe. Personally, this video isn't designed to defend or support NPR. I actually personally like listening to NPR. But that doesn't mean I, I agree with everything they say. Just like when I listen to the English paper, The Economist, they lean super far left and they hate Donald Trump. Do I listen and believe everything they say? No, of course not. But I use it as inspiration to fact check. That's the same thing that you should do as well so you can make up your own opinion. But my argument is that, hey, if we really want to get to the bottom of truth in social media, then we have to provide context to the entire discussion not just one tweet. And this was a missed opportunity by Community Notes where Community Notes could have very simply broken down the debate. Hey, in 2010, NPR's funding was this. In 2010 through 2023, the funding was this, X, Y, Z. It's all public. Community Notes could have easily broken that down. But instead, 
it seemed more interested in saying, no, no, it's essential, which is basically taking the side of Elon. Even though it was a note against Elon, it's taking the side of Elon and the Elon fans on Twitter, rather than actually adding more detailed support to the debate. So I question Elon's calls for the greatest truth GT, uh, GPT, because I don't think Community Notes is doing the best job yet. I think it's useful, it's going in the right direction, but it has some work to do. And it all is in response to this Tucker Carlson piece with Elon Musk. Let's listen to this and see what Elon has to say. And it's not playing. Quite fun. There we go. To the success of uh, OpenAI, uh, it was, I, I, I put a tremendous amount of effort into recruiting Ilya, and he changed his mind a few times and ultimately decided to go with OpenAI. But if he had not gone with OpenAI, OpenAI would not have succeeded. I really put a lot, a lot of effort into creating this, this, this organization to serve as a counterweight to Google. And then I kind of took my eye off the ball, I guess, and uh, they are now closed source. Um, and they are obviously for profit and they're um, closely allied with Microsoft. Uh, you know, in effect, Microsoft uh, has a very strong say, if not um, directly controls uh, OpenAI at this point. Um, so you really have an OpenAI and Microsoft situation, and then a Google DeepMind uh, are, the, are the two sort of heavyweights in this arena. So it seems like the world needs a third option. Yes. So I, 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 I think I will create a third option, um, although starting very late in the game, of course. Can it um, be done? I don't know. I think it's, we'll, we'll see. It's, uh, it's definitely starting late, um, but I will, I, will, I will try to create a third option. Um, and that third option hopefully does more, more good than harm. Uh, like the intention with OpenAI was uh, obviously to do good, but it's not clear whether it's actually doing good or whether it's, I, I can't tell at this point, um, except that I'm worried about the fact that uh, it's being, it's being trained to be politically correct, which is simply another way of, of being untruth, saying untruthful things. Yes. So that's, that's a bad sign. There's certainly a path to AI dystopia is to train AI to be deceptive. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start something which I know you could call truth GBT or uh, a maximum truth-seeking AI that tries to understand the nature of the universe. And I think this, this might be the best path to safety in the sense that uh, an AI that cares about understanding the universe uh, it is unlikely to annihilate humans because we are an interesting part of the universe. Uh, hopefully, <laughs> they would think uh -huh. that. I, I think, it would, I, you know, because, yeah, like, like, we, like hum humanity could um, decide to hunt down all the chimpanzees and kill them, but we yes. don't. Yeah, and so they go into this argument that a, like, Hopefully you could create something that cares upmost about the truth that then doesn't want to destroy all the other organisms that exist, just like we don't destroy whales or chimpanzees or otherwise. Now, later in this interview, Elon Musk talks about how social media often come, turns into this cesspool where everybody's fighting for clicks. And then you have this argument of everybody's trying to fight about how the other clan hates the other person rather than focusing on getting to the truth or getting to food, right? And that's very much, unfortunately, what I think Elon's community notes can sometimes actually contribute to is this divisiveness. See, for example, here's a commenter 
Uh, and I appreciate you saying this. Kevin, I'm a member of Community Notes and rated that tweet. Direct funding is different year by year and indirect funding, also fed funds, is given by different organizations yearly. Our goal wasn't an itemized audit. I understand that your goal might not have been an itemized audit. My argument is that it should have been. And here is why I say that. Because if Elon Musk wants to create something that is looking for the utmost truth, if the answer is truth, then what we need is data. And instead of analyzing data or providing data, in this case, Community Notes simply provided one minor argument in a larger debate that reiterated one side. You have to think about that. Community Notes reiterating that NPR is still saying funding is essential is taking one side of the debate. Think about that when we draw this out like this. If on one side you have NPR is gov shill, right? And then on the right side you have NPR is independent, okay? There, independent, whatever. So on one side you have NPR is independent. On the other side you have NPR is a, is a government shill. In order to get to the maximum level of truth, which is a goal that Community Notes is trying to do, it shouldn't simply be community noting something that actually reiterates, that's it, NPR is a government shill. That's what Community Notes did. It, it made a correction. In fairness, it made a correction. But by making that correction and not stepping into the rest of the debate to actually remain neutral, it de facto chose a side. And it happened to be the side that Elon Musk was on. And that is scary. So I know it might seem extreme, but the reality is if Elon's going to be trusted with a truth GT, a GPT, which anybody can create whatever they want, then you should also do your best to help settle disputes if you're a member of Community Notes by providing as much data as possible. Even if you have a little preface that says, hey, government, like it could be as simple as there's a debate going around on NPR. Here's the reality. A, NPR still says it's government uh, or, or uh, government funding is still essential. But here are more details on the debate. NPR's average funding has been 8% from government sources. NPR says they're independent. Uh, Elon Musk is debating creating a threshold for at what point of government funding a business should be deemed government supported. And then that should equally apply to other businesses. If certain media businesses are 8% funded by the government, then maybe if Enphase is 8% supported by the government, it should be considered a government supported enterprise as well, or Tesla. So that should apply equally. And so really, I'm not here to shill NPR or Elon. I'm probably taking the most unpopular opinion, which is again, trying to be in the middle. But the reality is, if you don't, fully extinguish the debate and you just take a, uh, one side, then Community Notes actually looks like it's partisan. All of a sudden, Community Notes looks like it's just a bunch of Elon shills doing something to support Elon Musk. Even though they were correcting Elon, they still took that, that side of the greater debate. Elon doesn't care about being corrected, if anything. And this is the sinister way to look at it. Elon could have purposefully made the mistake on his tweet to purposefully be community noted and then have community notes reiterate his basic argument.
that NPR is a government shill. That's touchy. That's touchy. Uh, uh, so I don't disagree, Kevin, but the point of community notes is context to a specific claim, not the larger argument. That's fair. That's a very fair counterpoint. Uh, I agree with you. I would take it a step further, though, and say if, if the broad goal is to maximize truth, then if somebody inputs an argument, they should get both sides, right? Like, for example, if I put into TruthGPT and say, uh, is Donald Trump racist? And it just says no or yes, whatever it says, right? And then I go, give me an example of Donald Trump being racist. And it's like, here's an example where Donald Trump, you know, said something about a black person, whatever, right? Uh, and then you're like, give me an example where Donald Trump said something about a white person. It does, fine. In such an example, in theory, it would be useful for the truth GPT to also go, hey, look, you asked for this, but just keep in mind, here's a whole host of data and information that suggests that yes, out of context, one of those comments may have been made, but in aggregate, so-and-so is likely not racist or likely racist. Because if we create a binary world, that is, you're either for me or against me, then we have a disastrous world. And that's really what I'm exemplifying here. You're creating, you're creating a one side versus the other side. But humanity is, is much more complex than that. And, and humanity is, is what I call a gradient, right? This is what you have. You have a gradient. And so you have people at various different elements. You have people over here on the left. You have people over here on the right. And the more you are to these, these edges, the more extremes you have. The vast majority of people, I would imagine, rest over here. And these people, this is probably 80% right here, they deserve both sides of the argument, not just one. And unfortunately, that community note example was providing just one piece of data, which reiterates just one side of the spectrum. And it doesn't even provide the suggestion, like a button that's like, hey, if you want more of our opinion on the, or, or like the community notes view of this debate, click here. Well, then again, you're not actually leading the world to realize there's more truth to be had than just one little correction. So again, by making one correction and not others, you're de facto taking a side and it's a problem. So that is uh, my advice to maybe uh, the truth GPT folks if, uh, if there should ever become a truth GPT. And that is my take on Elon Musk and truth GPT. People are like, oh, Kevin's always an Elon and Tesla shill. No, I, I personally try to look for truth as well. And that doesn't mean I'm perfect, but I really try, even if it's unpopular to do, I really try to look for What's the middle of the road? What are both sides of the argument? Because the reality is I think most people, 80% of people, deserve both sides. I mean, really everybody does, but some people won't want to hear it. Cheers.